0: Presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed
1: king of stuff. What is up? Podcasts is your favorite podcast host, John Gabriel, on your favorite podcast, the king of stuff. We have an interview coming up with Alexandra Hudson, a very smart, very accomplished woman, and uh, she has a new series on something called Wondrium. I was not aware of this, but. The Great Courses has changed to Wondrium, so you can screen all their awesome content. I highly recommend checking out all their stuff, especially Alexandra's new series that just released on the 25th of February, I believe, Friday. So uh, good to talk with her. Also wanted to give a couple announcements. Remember that the interview portion can be watched on video. I'll include a link in the show notes to the YouTube channel if you can't find it or you don't uh, bother with the show notes. Just go to YouTube and search for John Gabriel. That's the name of my channel. Very creative, I know. Um, It's an old channel that I did like 10 years ago, made music videos and stuff on. And I thought I should put up interviews on there since a lot of people get their content via YouTube rather than whatever podcast app you use. Also, especially for those in the Phoenix area, on March 11, Saturday, I'm going to be hosting a Ricochet meetup of Ricochet members, gotta be a Ricochet member, but uh, you can come there and sign up for Ricochet while you're there, less than five bucks a month. It's very inexpensive. And that way you can post your own info on Ricochet. You can comment, uh, right now, it's like if something's on the front page, you can read it. But if you wanna to get to the member feed and get in conversations with people and uh, comment on the podcast, etc., you can do that by being a member. So uh, we're going to be getting together in a suburb of Phoenix called Gilbert. Locals call it Gilbert, Arizona. A great uh, brewery there that we're going to meet up at and chat. So uh, we'd love to see you there. And now that those announcements are done, um, on the other side, I'll talk about news of the day. I want to talk about Ukraine one year in that war. Uh, Some developments on the immigration front. Let's see what else is going on. Lab leak. I think we'll get into that. That's all after the interview. So hang around. And here is Alexandra. Happy to welcome to the almighty King of Stuff podcast, Alexandra Hudson. Um, She is hosting a brand new series on Wondrium. You might know them as The Great Courses. I know I have imbibed many of them in the past. And uh, it is called her series is called Storytelling and the Human Condition. She also has a book coming out in about six weeks, I think, and it's called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. She's also an adjunct faculty member at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Uh, She is the founder of Civic Renaissance. She does way too much for me to catalog here, but thanks so much for being on.
2: Thank you for having me, John. And publication date is October 10th uh, for the book. Oh, okay. For this year, but please, please pre-order now.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. You can get it now. Uh, head to Amazon. I will include a link in the show notes. So why don't you tell us about the idea behind uh, this Wondrium series?
2: Thank you um, so much for having me and for that question. So uh, the origin story of this series goes back to kind of my childhood where I was raised on Wondrium, formerly Great Courses, content mm-hmm. every birthday, every Christmas, sometimes just for no reason at all. My father would go to his closet of mystery and come out with a new DVD or sometimes a VH- VHS. <laughs> series of an eight track uh,
1: audio yeah exactly
2: exactly (laughs) eight track exactly um and and um and he would give me a new series so american history greek mythology astrophysics like the basics of calculus whatever it is like the 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 the, the teaching company great courses kind of was like the backbone of my education really growing Mm -hmm. up and and um More broadly, I was just raised in a very intellectually omnivorous home. My my parents both modeled for us and and unconsciously trained us to to realize that education was not just something that happened in the classroom. It was a way of viewing the world and others as just with, with wonderment, with openness, with curiosity and with the disposition that, that um, realizes that every, every experience and every person has something to teach us. And so this notion of education not just being something that happened in the classroom has always been really important to me. And the great courses, the teaching company, wonder was part of that. And um, so fast forward you know, several decades, and when they reached out to me about creating a series for them, it just felt like a beautiful life symmetry and like a life achievement unlocked that I didn't even, it had never been a life goal of mine, but it like, it was now it, it's like, I added it to my life goal list just to be able to check it off. It's like, that was incredible. Like how could that is this really happening. And, um, and so we began the process of brainstorming several different ideas for, for different series. And like one of them that I'd still love to create one day is like how to unleash your creative potential, like how every single human being, has creative potential and like, what does it look like to nurture that and nurture, recruit, nurture a creative passion to help us be our fully, fully creative and our, and the best version of our human selves. Cause I think everyone has a creative output to contribute to the world. And anyway, but we settled on this course storytelling and the human condition. And it had, it was like, great conversation and self-help angles like great books, great storytelling from media, from culture, from across history. Um, but showing explicitly what those stories reveal about what it means to be human and what it means to lead a meaningful life. And my hope is that anyone who enjoys this series, um, It kind of takes away that there are stories all around us all the time, whether whether they're active stories or they're just they're 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 stories about who we are as human beings in the world that we live in. And the more that we're aware of that, the more power we have to, to tell and retell both our own narratives and our narratives about the world around us that bring us more joy and that are more empowering. And we all have all have that power. There's a reason that the final episode is on freedom, storytelling and freedom sharing Mm -hmm. stories of incredible people from um, Hannah Arendt to Phyllis Wheatley to Viktor Frankl, who endured enormous tragedy, but who harnessed the power of storytelling to help them uh, reclaim their agency and lead rich lives. So um, thank you for inviting me to share a little bit about the series with you.
1: Oh, that's great. And one thing that I appreciated, too, uh, before we started recording, I mentioned I watched several of the episodes. And one thing that I liked is, We've talked a lot about great books on this podcast, and uh, I just got obsessed with them maybe five years ago. I did not grow up with them. I grew up with reading um, magazine articles and um, how I could get the most information with the absolute least effort. And about five years ago, I'm like, well, I hear everybody re- referring to these smart people. Maybe instead of reading about them, I should actually read them. Amazing. Um, yes. But one thing that I love, too, in your piece is it's not just, oh, OK, let's talk Plato and Dostoevsky. It's Billie Holiday, yes. Hannah Arendt, like you mentioned, and just bringing this all to what you uh, call in the series, the great conversation. Now, why don't you tell us what that is, because I think it's a concept We talk a lot about great books in our culture, at least starting to, um, but we don't talk a lot about the great conversation, which is kind of the point of reading all these old books.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I prefer to use the language of the great conversation um, because over great books, because to me, the great conversation is, is not a defined canon of old male white thinkers. And it's not. Mm-hmm. So So here are the three distinctions between the great books and the great conversation. One, it's not the great conversation. First of all, to it. it's the iterative dialogue on big foundational questions of the human experience that people have been reflecting on and often answering through story, across history and across culture. So the first difference is that it's not just books, the great conversation. It's all, it's across media. It's, it's, you know, it's theater. It's art it's it's sculpture it's sitcoms there are several um more contemporary uh dramas in my in my mm-hmm. uh, series like there is uh, michael Schur's the good place he's the producer who brought us yeah. the office parks and we Red. love
1: that the whole yes, family
2: <laughs> yes exactly and there's also hbo succession and that those are put in dialogue with for example dante's inferno and um a line in winter and the life story of the buddha so i i intentionally across genre and across culture to again illuminate this idea that the great conversation is not just books. Second, it's not just old white men. Mortimer Adler, um, who famously assembled the kind of canon, right? There are several um, attempts to 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 put together like what, who are the authors everyone should read, and one of the famous um, attempts to do that was Mortimer Adler's at U Chicago um, in the 1950s. And it wasn't until and there were no women and no people of color in that, um, in, had that first rendition in the 90, in the 1990s, he went back and I think he added one woman, I think it was a Virginia Woolf to the canon, oh. people of color. And so, yeah. um, but I mean, that, that's obviously not true that people of color, um, and, you know, non-white males and, and women, it's not true that they didn't have anything to contribute, right? Like right. at all, it's not the case. And so that's another mm-hmm. distinction and between great conversation, as I define it and great books. Um, and that is why. I have um, many people of color and many women that I feature their stories and the stories that they tell in in the series. And of course, the great conversation um, is not just the West. The great books were primarily Western authors, authors of the Western tradition, which are incredible. Like I I Mm -hmm. love Plato, like Plato's my guy, Augustine's my guy, Pascal's my guy. These are huge intellectual, intellectually formative for me, but I love I love branching out. And that's what I loved about creating the series. I loved finding remedying knowledge gaps. We're all captive to the educations that we were given. That's not a fault mm-hmm. of our own. Um, and that's, what's fun about when our educational journey can really begin is after school where we can start reading for fun and and so it's fun to um you know find echoes of platonism in the eastern tradition right like mm-hmm. and, and just like so i i i'm christian i have a faith background and i believe all truth is is god's truth and i love finding um truth goodness and beauty that is, has echoes in all different cultures and all different forms it's not no one thinker or culture has a monopoly on on these
1: right things. Well, one thing that I really enjoyed, too, is when I started reading Plato and especially Greek philosophy, I would read one book of theirs and then read, I don't know, I'm trying to think, The Art of War or um, different kinds of Asian wisdom literature. And it was fascinating to see the a lot of similarities, but also where they differed and just kind of their perspective on things. It was just kind of fun to compare, contrast how these two great civilizations kind of played off each other and each other's ideas. Another thing, too, when you talk the great conversation, um, you need to read a lot of great books to appreciate someone awesome, like my boy Frederick Douglass. You know, here's a guy with, like, zero formal education who is more brilliant than almost anyone alive today. And he was steeped in, you know, he's talking about – Gosh, I'm I'm trying to think of all the authors. You know, he would go through one paragraph and reference people from Renaissance France, ancient Greece, a modern thinker that's his contemporary. It was just amazing. Just weave these together, and some of the best writing you've ever run across yes. in your life. And that just kind of shows this great conversation. It's it's everybody's legacy that lives yes. in the West, however loosely that's defined. Since somebody in Singapore is kind of in the West. Uh, people working at one of these tech farms in India are kind of part of a West, of the West, and they can kind of jump into it, find out what they like, share their own perspective. And that's why these great books are great books. If a book, I don't know, Joe Blow the Philosopher in uh, ancient Rome just stumbled off a ship from Athens and tried to apply his wares. If he wrote a horrible book, we don't know about it because it's snake. <laughs> Right. It didn't it the the only books that survived were the great books that you had people copying and recopying, whether Muslim scholars, whether monks in Byzantium, um, all these people copied the best of the best. And that's why pretty much all these things you're gonna get something valuable out of it.
2: Absolutely. And I, you know, it's incredible how there's literally a language barrier between us and the founding fathers and people who wrote in that era and, and even the decades and centuries after them, because they had this sort of cultural grid of which uh, a central part were the Iliad, the Odyssey and the classics, right? That, that's a huge part of the foundational aspect of education throughout Western history. And so they toss around these allusions, these references to Roman emperors and to Greek mythology that the people they're um, talking to in their day would get like that. Like we're mm-hmm. talking about storytelling, right? Like allusions right. And metaphor that's the that, that's the language they use. And yet today we do not have that cultural grid, and so it's like we have no idea things could just go right over our head. We only get we don't even get the superficial meaning because they're using names and and referencing stories that we don't even know. So there's literally it's it's, it's really fascinating. I've, I've noticed that in reading, you know, the founding fathers or even Adam Smith, Alexis de Tocqueville, a hundred years later, um, they they just had an, a, a, an assumption about who they were talking to, and um, and everyone could have had the same. Um, baseline of reading and, 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 mm-hmm. and knowledge base that we just can't assume anymore.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, another, uh, thing that you brought up, which is very important, and it's very important to me personally, I tend to be, um, a walking spreadsheet, here are the facts and figures. And so if I'm um, trying to convince someone of the brilliance of, I don't know, some dumb tax idea I had, I'll say, well, look, look at the charts, I made these, they're color coded, they're in Excel, isn't that great? And people are looking at me like I'm utterly insane. It's like, no, this proves my policy is best. But no, I have to constantly remind myself, especially uh, getting more and more into writing over the past decade, at least, is just understanding the power of story and how stories are how we convince people and even if we don't convince them kind of share our perspective on it i you know i don't know say 20 years ago i could have this policy of here's how we fix poverty in the inner city Mm -hmm. and it might have an insight or two but hearing the story from someone who grew up in that environment a dear friend of mine um he I, I won't mention his name because i received per, uh permission but he grew up in the south side of chicago uh in the shadow of cabrini green one of the most notorious housing projects um lived in a car with his mom for several months and hearing his story i'm like oh okay there's all sorts of things i haven't considered yet and um it, it's just great to focus on that need for story whatever you're doing in life whether you're in policy or politics whether you're trying to convince a customer to buy your product, whether you're trying to convince your neighbor, yeah, this is why we have to organize and push this idea. So mm-hmm. why is storytelling so much more powerful than just here's a bunch of bullet points listing the facts?
2: It's a great question. I don't think we actually, you know, no, no, but we can we, we, what we do know is that it is something deeply ingrained in our genetics and our DNA Um is is riveted by stories, and always has been. Like you know, even in the pre-literate, um, not even oral tradition. Like some of the oldest stories we have are paintings on caves from like seventeen thousand mm-hmm. years old. And then you yeah. know, fast forward a little bit more. Like we've been um the oral tradition and, and pre-literate societies. Like we were just. It, it was how we passed the time. It was how we um transmitted values. It was how we transmitted history. Who are we? And 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 again, answer these foundational questions that the great conversation explores of. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is the best way to live? These are questions that we've reflected on and often answered through stories. And um, I mean, so, so research out of Princeton University uh, has found that the the um, brainwaves of a storyteller and a story listener they link up and they they mm-hmm. they are in sync when we um, when we are um, you know hearing and listening to the story. So again, that's not an explanation for why, but that's an explanation that. Storytelling is powerful. And, and we, again, it's not just a matter of sitting down and, 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 and saying a story, like a, you know, once upon a time or a fairy tale, but it's like, it's recognizing coming to appreciate that we live and breathe in stories, like our inhabited lives are one long story. And, and, and again, my, one of my, my hopes with the, with the series is that we can appreciate uh, and just maybe come to recognize what are the stories that we are telling about ourselves, about, the other, maybe, or the like. Who is the hero in our lives and our framework? Mm-hmm. Who is the villain in our lives? What is the story we're telling about the world around us? And how can? maybe I tell a story that is a little closer to the truth and a little closer to cultivating my humanity and, and the humanity of others. So the, the, an underlying thesis of the course is that I think I mentioned this already, but like all great works of art tell a story about the human condition. And that's why in the series, I, um, I put all sorts of different works of art and dialogue and genres so like, you know, opera and tragedy and song. Um, and, and that all great art, Cultivates our humanity. It 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 cultivates what's best in us. It makes us more humane and it diminishes what is ignoble in us. And as our humanity is cultivated, we are better to appreciate the humanity in others. We're made a little more gentle and a little less savage, a little more kind. Um that's what that is what an original the traditional education in the humanities did. It made us more human and more humane. Um, and so that's very much the tradition I am building off. Of. That's what the liberal arts did. They were the liberating arts. They liberate mm-hmm. us, liberated us from our, uh, they gave us true freedom that they liberated us from our ignoble passions, the passions that were cruel, the passions that 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 made us monstrous and more, more like animals and more vicious. Um, and so again, my hope is that um, those that enjoy the series um, are able to uh, come away with an appreciation of, the incredible power of stories to help us lead our lives better.
1: Yeah. And, um, something that you bring up, uh, repeatedly too is just the power of stories to persuade, um, we in our society just like to slam people, troll yes. people, bludgeon people with uh, some bumper sticker slogan and shut them down on social media. How do we kind of reclaim this, um, I don't know. I guess a culture of persuasion, because when I was growing up, you know, the nineteen tens, you know, I won't say my exact age, but that was kind of the purpose when you'd have discussion with people is try to persuade them and to, uh, you know, supporting your candidate, supporting going to your church instead of the one down the street. That was kind of the goal of that. How do we kind of re-enable that kind of perspective where? Instead of just trying to mock and ridicule people who disagree with us, there are a lot of persuadable people out there, um, whether it's just someone in your neighborhood talking about a neighborhood issue or um, someone in the more broader context.
2: It is such a great question. Like we've lost patience We've lost a tolerance for the work that comes with persuading people, and so um, I th- like. I think a version of your question is like: What do we do when we encounter people that accept a story that is different from ours? And instead of trying to tell a better story, again persuading them, we just mm-hmm. immediately want to cut off and. Yeah. Attack emotionally or physically sometimes like, right. that, that, that accept different stories, different views of the world than us. And that is not a world that is conducive to human flourishing. That is not a world that respects the dignity, dignity, dignity and, and, and um, autonomy um, and diversity of, of the human experience. Like diversity is the spice of life. Like, it's, it's like what, what, like, uh, of course there are some stories that are, you know, bad, like stories that, um, accept a worldview of racial hierarchy or, you know, mm-hmm. child abuse or, like, there, there are, this is not a total pluralistic world. There's right, there a right. bad story, but you know, when it comes to visions of the good and visions for how to pursue the good, uh, what does it mean to uh, accept a story that, um, that embraces human diversity, embraces that, you know, reasonable minds can disagree. And this is actually related to the, the, the question of my book and my, the question of my book that's coming out in October is how do we do this thing called life together across difference? And this is the, the, the defining question of our species that we've been trying, we've been grappling with and succeeding, uh, to various extents since since as long as we've been around we've always wanted to be together we know that we are more cooperative we flourish we're happier we self-actualize we fully become human and community and yet it's hard doing life together is no walk in the park it takes work it takes effort um both um and and everyone has a role to play in this effort um that we you know so
1: yeah and I, i think too it's always important to remind people um You know, I'm on Twitter far too much and other social media and the culture there can be very toxic. Most of the people, well, a huge number of the people I follow are from the media centers. They're from D.C. They're from New York City. Tech people in the Bay Area and you just see so much hostility in things. And then I walk outside my door and I go get gas and I see customers helping each other and I see somebody spotting 10 bucks to the homeless guy. I I see people getting along great. Everyone holding the door open for each other. Mm. Everybody joking with each other at the grocery store. And it's like, Okay, this isn't as bad as it appears when people who are you have this tiny sliver of people who are even on Twitter. And then you refine that even smaller to people who care passionately about politics and don't have a lot of patience for reading much more than a tweet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're going to have some weird, dysfunctional attitudes. But there's a lot of people out there who just want community and part of community is storytelling. And it's going to involve religion and politics. It's going to involve. Hey, can you help me out? My wife's on bed rest and we need someone to take our kids to school. You know, that's how you build connections in the here and now. It's not like let's let's install the let's install this policy in Washington, D.C. to fix this problem. No, a lot of it is just uh, getting off my rear end and going out there and being a neighbor to someone.
2: That's exactly right. The final chapter in my on, in my book is is on misplaced meaning and and also forgiveness. But my theory there is that uh, as these traditional touchstones of meaning, like church, like civil society, like community, has have been on the recedent uh, in recent decades, that we have misplaced our meaning from those things to politics, and we like. We, we've we've made politics our BLN, all, all the core of our identity It was where we drive our meaning. And that is why we aren't able to rationally and calmly disagree about matters of policy anymore. Matters of policy are personal. They're an extension of my identity of who I am. And so if you're attacking my policy, you're attacking me and I'm going to revert to fight or flight mode. I'm going to get defensive. Mm-hmm. And, and there is no rat. There's no having calm. Agree to disagree, reasonable conversation with someone whose lizard brain is activated and in fight or flight. Mm-hmm. most. right, right, and, right. And so, part of my argument is that we need to re get a put politics in its place, make it matter less than it currently does, and and part of doing that is not just saying politics matter less to me. It it, it actively means creating space in our lives. Uh, it, it means actually creating space in our lives for better and more beautiful alternatives, like friendship, friendship, um, um, like intellectual curiosity and learning and, and, and also encountering, Beauty, like having a nature walk, like taking up, you know, um, just, just 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 commuting with nature, and those are just three examples of many that are possible um, mechanisms by which we can fill do things, fill our lives with things that fill our souls. Because as it is now, we're all kind of running on empty emotionally and psychologically, yeah. and we're just it's not nothing's productive, nothing's <laughs> nothing's helpful, and <laughs> so nothing's right. Um, so we need to like fill the well first, and and to be able to have the grace and equanimity that is necessary to have these conversations is about important topics that need to be had.
1: Yeah, definitely. And just getting out of the cocooning that we do in the modern world and we do more so every year, something that made it worse was all the lockdowns. People um something um I'm constantly telling um my male friends you got to spend some time with your buddies, with your friends. I'm Very blessed to have a group of friends I meet with all the time. Uh, There's like four or five of us from college. And then there's two other guys. We've known each other since junior high. We get together every month and uh, puncture each other's bubbles and uh, support each other. (laughs) And and, uh, just having some kind of community in the real world will kind of get you out of the toxic internet-only mindset a lot of us get. I wanted to get to one last thing since we're running out of time. You just wrote a piece, came out on Monday for Christianity Today, and this is actually a favorite subject of mine. You're comparing the Judeo-Christian story to the ancient Babylonian one, and I heard a guy say, kind of trying to compare ancient pagan religions to Christianity. Um, No one said, no one sung a song saying, what a friend I had in Zeus Uh, back Back in the day, it was a slightly different perspective. So, why don't you tell us briefly about that article?
2: Yeah. So, as I was creating the series, I, um, you know, the the vision for the series was to to follow the, the the human experience. So, starting with with origins: who are we, and how did the world come to be? What is the stuff of humanity? And then, of course, carrying through to suffering and pride and materialism, and then finally death in the afterlife and 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 freedom, which is the final lecture, but for this episode on origin stories, it was absolutely fascinating to explore different stories from across history and culture about how the world came to be one thing I learned is that there's a remarkable, um, continuity of ex nihilo narratives, like for, in a, in a, a, um, uh, Chinese origin um, myth, there's something called the nebulous void. And that's just how the world came to be. There was a nebulous void that created the world. (laughs) And of course, some some people, uh, and and that's, that's of course how, how, how God in in the Hebrew Bible, um, the geo Christian narrative, like he created, he, he spoke the world into existence, right? Um, one, one, really interesting compared to that, 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 that brought home to me and made me appreciate with new, um, with fresh eyes, the, um, Judeo-Christian story that I hold to be true and that I have accepted my entire life was putting, um, that story in dialogue with the Babylonian creation story. It's called the Enuma Elish. It's probably the oldest story in the world that we know of, um, probably dating back you know, 15 to 70,000 years. And this story tells the story of um, generational warfare. So there are two primary gods. they have kids, and then there, the, this is also a common trend amongst origin stories across history and culture. The gods, uh, there's, there's parricide, there's infanticide, um, all the way all the way through. Ultimately, a younger generation of God named Marduk, um, he's the order of the world is set. He like speaks the world into being. and then the other gods, they complain, they say, we don't want to work anymore. I don't want to work. And I Marduk's, hear you ancient yeah, gods yes, exactly. <laughs> Mark's like, okay, I got you. And he decides to well he murders his mother's stepfather and from that that um, his stepfather's blood he creates man. and um, and he says, I'm gonna create a lowly and primitive creature to take our um, to take the, our burden of work. And so man is created. Man has no special place in creation. Man is not significantly, man is created from a God's blood, but there's no special duty or um, authority that comes with that. And, the, of course, he, man is created to serve, to be a servant and and created of violence. Like there's just been all this generational warfare and man is in both an afterthought and created of great violence. Put that contrast that to the Judeo-Christian narrative where God, it's a very peaceful creation narrative. God just says, let, let it be. And and it is. And he says, and God delights in this creation after every everything that God creates. He says, it is good. It is good. It is good. And after he creates man, well, first of all, he creates man. Uh, Genesis one twenty-seven, God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Like that notion of the Imago Dei is so important in the history of Western thought. And and and, and not just Western thought, but also and in in something we take for granted today, which is human rights and human dignity, we we take for granted that all persons have inalienable rights um, by virtue of just having our shared moral status of, as members of the human community. That is not something that this ancient Babylonian. Um, creation myth took for granted, and most of human history did not take that, did not assume that to be the case either. And um, and of course, um, so after God created man in His own image, um, He 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 says it is very good. He's pleased. He's delighted with His creation and gives them stewardship, gives them a special place amongst creation. And we're not created just to work. We, we're created to cultivate the earth and and nurture the the earth that, that God created. But He created us to delight him and for us to delight in him. Like we're non-utilitarian. I just think it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it just helped me appreciate this narrative that I took for granted my whole life.
1: Yeah. And in the article too, you refer to Dominion, a great book by Tom Holland. Everybody read it, it, but it is kind of like he brings up even people who are in bad faith, angry against religion and trying to bash it all the time, you know, in a jerky way, not like some principled (laughs) atheistic or, Um, perspective, but just kind of yelling at people they don't like, they're usually attacking Christianity by using Christian morality. You guys don't care enough about the victims. This isn't fair. And it's like, okay, you do realize all those kind of uh, came to the fore of culture because of Christianity. And yeah, we are far from perfect, to say the least. But it's just interesting how the world shifted so much um, with the message (laughs) of Christ and Christianity just spreading throughout. Absolutely. All right. Well, where can people find your work? Thank you very much for spending time with us. We'll include a bunch of links in the show notes, but where are all the places people can find you? And there are a lot of things you're doing. So
2: <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, just go to alexandraohudson.com and there you can enjoy uh, the course for free. I'm giving away a free month of Wondrium. And of course, you can enjoy my series on wondrium um and and there you can also sign up for civic renaissance my newsletter and intellectual community dedicated to beauty goodness and truth and the wisdom of the past and where we talk about things like origin stories and the power of myth in our world and and um if you want a little bit more beauty goodness and truth in your life then, then please uh, please join us over there to, um thank you
1: yeah we all need that thanks so much for being on really appreciate it Great to talk to Alexandra. Check out her programs, books, uh, Substack newsletter, all that good stuff. Um, it's all great to hear and great to hear, too. We talked to Spencer Clavin a couple of weeks back. It's just good to see a lot of people at the same time talking about, hey, we got to reclaim this uh, great conversation, the great books, all this great learning. Um, you got to kind of understand where we've been to figure out where we're going. But one thing that popped up in the news is lab leak. Department of Energy and a couple other federal agencies have said, look, it's only a low probability. We don't know for sure, but it sure looks like the coronavirus was a lab leak. Now, this bizarrely became this weird back and forth culture war issue when it was obvious from the start that Wuhan has a lab that manufactures viruses, and this virus. Is novel. We've never seen it before. It has kind of uh, weird effects on people as opposed to a normal bird flu or common flu. It just made sense that it was from the lab somehow. There's some people who said, oh, it was weaponized and it's a bioweapon. Well, then they would release it in uh, Peoria, Illinois, not uh, Wuhan itself. So it was probably accidental because uh, it really wiped out China. China not, has not done very well economically, socially, politically diplomatically since this whole thing broke, even though uh, I think the world has been way too easy on them about uh, creating this virus. Anyway, more people are saying, look, it looks like it was probably a lab leak. And for some reason, many people on the left are very upset about it. They're kind of mocking it. You had a talk show host, late night host first, like a year plus ago, saying this is a crazy conspiracy theory. It's insane. It's insane. And now you have people saying, well, it doesn't really matter because it's low probability, especially the late night comedians. Instead of saying, yeah, we kind of got this wrong because we mocked Trump and anybody who supported Trump or didn't support Trump and promoted a lab leak hypothesis. um, We we just can't get on board with that. We need to mock and ridicule them, even though they're right. So um, here is a, a few clips that uh, I think his name is Tom Elliott on Twitter. I, I just called a couple clips. He was showing clips of people uh, freaking out cable news hosts on CNN, on MSNBC. You got Joe Scarborough, a bunch of other people. Joy Reid, all mocking and ridiculing this uh, when people first heard to talk about this very obvious uh, possibility that, hey, uh, maybe this was a lab leak
2: lab in wuhan china and yet this week donald trump is still pushing the debunked bunkum despite his own intelligence community's findings that that is simply not true
0: tom cotton a couple of days ago uh, spouting a conspiracy theory that the Chinese made yeah. this virus up. You, you have the lab and go. in a lab. You have Rush Limbaugh every day, presidential medal, freedom of honor. It's hard to say this is the most reckless thing he's ever done, but saying that basically this was just a conspiracy and this was just made up to hurt Donald Trump. He said something yesterday. I, I can't even keep up with it, but every day
1: is a new, dangerous conspiracy theory. I mean, this is. This is serious stuff, folks. Now all those people are silent now. Pretty much the only people who have commented about it are Late Night Comics. Hassan Minaj, I believe is his name, is guest hosting for The Daily Show. I'm have not. i not familiar with his stuff. He mocked it, and Stephen Colbert mocked it. Here's a couple clips of them. Now, even though they had low confidence, the Department of Energy came
0: out and said COVID was a lab leak. And now, every f- idiot I went to
1: high school with is like, apologize to me right now, Hassan. I told you I was right. And if your hand is bigger than your face, you're gay. Now, who am I to say? They're the energy department. I'm sure they're smart. They wouldn't release these findings unless they were absolutely confident. What's that? They made their judgment with low confidence. Yeah. What's interesting about uh, Stephen Colbert here is about a year ago, Jon Stewart, you know, no rock ribbed conservative, he went on the Colbert show and mentioned, yeah, it was probably a lab leak to which uh, Colbert was flummoxed. The audience didn't know if they were allowed to laugh. So most of them did not. And he makes kind of the common sense case for why it probably came out of a lab. And I just to refresh everyone's memory, um, John Stewart was really bashed over this. But uh, very quickly, here is his rant on it possibly being a lab leak. Occurred about a year ago. What, what, what do you mean? by it? Do you mean like well, so there's perhaps there's there a chance that this was created in a lab? There's an investigation. A chance? Well, but so, I don't. I, I, oh I, my if God! There's evidence. I'd love to hear it. There's I just don't
0: a know. N- novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. <laughs> That's just, that's just a little too weird, don't you think? And then they I, ask those I, scientists, they're like, how did this... So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan Respiratory Coronavirus Lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle. Mm. <laughs> and you're like, no. I, you, you, the wait, name wait, of your wait. lab, if you look at the name, look at the name, can I... Let me see your business card. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the... Coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili, and now we all have coronavirus. Like, okay, wait, okay, wait, okay. wait a second, wait a second. Wait a what second. about this? What about this? Second. Listen to this. Wait a second. All right. John. Oh my God. Oh my God. There's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean or it's the (laughs) chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be.
1: Well, now Jon Stewart is back. He has a podcast called The Problem with Jon Stewart. Not a good podcast. It's kind of warmed over conventional wisdom. And it seems like an old guy who's trying desperately to catch up with whatever the woke conventional wisdom is of the day. Um, not funny. It's just kind of disappointing. The issue with a lot of comedians is when they start taking themselves so seriously, that's when it really goes downhill. Uh, Comedian can make a serious point, but once he starts uh, gazing into the mirror too much and making sure he has the perfect suit on and uh, is testifying constantly before Congress, which Jon Stewart does, you're no longer willing to uh, mock yourself. And when you can't laugh at yourself, you're just not going to be as funny. But uh, Jon Stewart did talk about the backlash he received to that rant and how shocked he was. He shouldn't have been shocked if he was paying attention to our political culture especially on the left, but also on the right. But here is his uh, complaints about how he was treated a year ago. Uh, Was a result of a lab leak. Uh, Are you? Are you
0: trying to get me canceled again?
1: <laughs> I know. I've, I've gotten so many texts being like, is John gloating? Do you feel vindicated?
0: No, there is no.
1: There, what, I, the, first of all,
0: I, I wasn't waiting for the Department of Energy to wait. Right. You know, like, that's one of those. You were,
2: like, hey, you were refreshing yeah. the Department of Energy feed. Well,
0: well, what is the Department of Energy? I'm, with low confidence. It's, it's not about certainty or the, the larger problem with all of this is the inability to discuss things that are within the realm of possibility without falling into absolutes and litmus testing each other for uh, our political allegiances as it arose from that. My my bigger problem with with that was, I thought it was a pretty good bit that expressed kind of how I felt. And the two things that came out of it were, I'm racist against Asian people, and how dare I align myself with the alt-right? And I thought, well, that's such a peculiar, you know, and for those of you who, who don't know what we're talking about, and God <laughs> God bless you if you don't, uh, I'd gone on Stephen Colbert's show. Uh, Stephen is a, a young up-and-coming uh, <laughs> improv in, <laughs> actor uh, with the program. He'll make it. And and just really very wide hips, surprisingly. <laughs> um, but the the point was, I was doing a bit about, and it was similar to a bit I've done on religion. I used to do a bit about religion, saying religion's giving comfort to a world torn apart by religion. So the idea was, uh, you know, about the vaccines and other things that science had uh, truly helped heal a world from a pandemic, uh, probably called by science. And then I proceeded to go on a kind of a long tangent about why that. Why I thought that. Um, And the backlash was swift, uh, immediate, and uh, quite loud. Uh, Mm -hmm. And again, I didn't take that personally either. Like, we live in a world where, like, I have my opinion. I'm not mad at the backlash either because they're doing what I was doing, which is expressing myself. The part that I don't like about it is the... The absolutes and the dismissive like.
1: Mm -hmm. okay. so moving on from the lab leak, we had, I think, on Friday was the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I wrote about it for the Arizona Republic and it got picked up in a few places. Basically, I'm just trying to kind of like the Jon Stewart thing. It's like most issues have some bit of nuance in it. And now people have kind of divided into the camp of Ukraine is evil scumbags Um, who should be destroyed, and let's support Putin. And on the other side, the vast majority of the people are like, no, Putin is evil. We will support Ukraine forever. We should send them all the money we ever even imagined having, and uh, we will continue this for 50 years if we need to. To quote Obama, both of these are wrong. I come out somewhere in the middle, but the middle is where the common sense is. Biden did a trip over there About a week ago, our Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, went over there on Monday. I'm like, what are you doing there? Visiting all the money that we're spending on those guys? It's just kind of weird. Then you'll have like Bono flying out there and Coldplay flying out there. The whole thing is just a little odd. Yeah, I was called, of course, a Putin lover because I said, actually, we are not going to be there forever. Kabul? I mentioned this last week. Yeah, we kind of saw uh, what happened in Afghanistan. We promised them that we'd be there forever to protect and create democracy there. Now, there will be a certain point when the American people are done with it and then they will just move on. And that's what's already happening with Ukraine. Forty eight percent support arming Ukraine. That was like 62 percent a year ago. So it's going in the wrong direction. Just a lot of people are saying, hey, how much are we going to spend and how long is this going to go on? And hey, shouldn't we be trying to negotiate a peace? I have this crazy idea that war is very, very bad. Um, I don't want to see a bunch of people slaughtered, whether they have uh, a Ukrainian flag lapel pin or a Russian flag lapel pin. Uh, These soldiers do not want to be there. They're uh, clearing out the jails around Moscow and around the country to uh, use them as cannon fodder. I think it's better for everyone if there's no war. Crazy. I know that makes me a Putin lover, uh, thinking that his invasion was wrong and war is bad. But uh, I don't know. I guess I'm out on an island here. I, I do not uh, fit into either category of pro-Ukraine, pro-Russia. I I kind of want this thing over. I want it over. If they negotiate fine, that's better. It's better than seeing, uh I don't know, a million or two more people slaughtered over a stupid war that uh, Putin never should have done and has hurt himself greatly with and, of course, hurt Ukraine greatly with. Basically, though, this is just the point of democracy. The American people are going to get sick of it and get tired of it and move on. And 2014 or 2024, the election year, is going to look very different and much more anti-spend money on Ukraine than it is now. And why politicians don't see this and better start tacking the correct way on this Look, you got to focus on your job, which is the American people. When uh, Biden and Yellen, et cetera, fly out to Ukraine but refuse to visit East Palestine, Ohio, there is a problem. And you could say there's an imaging problem, but it seems like uh, this administration and many Republicans are far more concerned about what's going on on the other side of the world than they are about what's going on at home. People are noticing And it's very annoying. Your main job is for the U.S. George Shultz, he was the secretary of state. He passed away like within a year, I think, not too long ago. But um, he was the secretary of state under uh, Ronald Reagan. And he had a test when you would have a new ambassador. Reagan would declare Joe Blow the ambassador to Botswana. okay? and George Shultz, before they left for their country, he would invite them into his office have a conversation with him, get to know him a little. And before they left, he had this huge globe and he said, uh, why don't you go over to that globe and put your hand where your country is? And so this ambassador would walk over there and find Botswana and point to Botswana. And George Schultz would say, no. And he would move the globe to America and put their hand on America. It's like, look, you might be assigned to Botswana, but you represent America. And he said basically every single ambassador would point to the country they were heading off to wherever it was, whatever it was. And he had to say, no, you represent America in that country. You represent our interests to that country. And that always has to be the proper position. Yeah, we can support people that are, who are allies of ours around the world, but you better not think that's the main job that we have. We need to be uh, getting ready for um, China, maybe moving on Taiwan We have a lot of other things, a lot of other irons in the fire and getting uh, swamped and stuck in a land war in Asia is not in anyone's best interest. Um, We need to pay attention to all these things going on around the world and focusing only on Ukraine is just kind of weird. The other thing that's weird, and you're seeing a lot of Republicans do this um, at the State of the Union address. Mitch McConnell is wearing a Ukrainian tie, no U.S. flag lapel pin, just the blue and gold of the Ukrainian flag. Uh, about a year ago, Kevin McCarthy did the same thing. He had a lapel pin, but it was a uh, lapel pin of the Ukrainian flag with a little pocket square that was Ukrainian flag colors. OK, you can cheer them on. They're plucky. They are David versus Goliath. And I think most people support what they're doing because Putin, he started it. You can't deny he invaded. He didn't need to do that. Just keep in mind what country it is that you're representing, folks, and that is the United States of America. And when the American people more and more see you care more about what's going on in Eastern Europe than you care about what's going on in your own backyard, they are going to be very upset with you and turn you out of office. Okay. last thing, CNN actually asked me to write about this. So I posted a story today on their site Last week, like Thursday and Friday, the House uh, Judiciary Committee uh, flew out to Yuma, Arizona. Now, most people know um, Yuma from movie titles or if they happen to ever drive between San Diego and Phoenix, that's basically the midway point where you stop and uh, get some Del Taco before you in more gas before you hit the road again. But Yuma, it's like five miles away from the border with Mexico And uh, they have just been swamped. Basically, they've had um, it's about a 100,000 person community. The population is about 100 K. They've had 300 K migrants running across the border through there. And they've had to deal with them there. There's a single hospital there. They're running out of beds. They can't uh, put kids, babies in NICU. A neo. What is it? Neonatal intensive care unit. Uh, My first daughter needed to spend some time in the NICU. Well, um, you're having a lot of these migrants come across the border pregnant, giving birth on this side of the border. And they have all sorts of health issues because they've gotten almost no care. Uh, They did this grueling, miserable human trafficking uh, drive slash hike through across the borders. They're in bad health. Well, um, these migrants and their children are taking up all the NICU beds. So you have locals in Yuma who pay for this. Um, have to travel all the way to Phoenix or San Diego, about a hundred seventy mile journey to either city, because there's no room at the single hospital in Yuma, um, and they, of course, nobody's paying the bills of all these migrants. The government refuses. There's, there's even a problem, and so they're just basically taking it on the chin. So there's all sorts of social services, uh, drug issues, fentanyl, of course, happening in Yuma. It's just a mess. So Jim Jordan who is uh, the chairman of House Judiciary, he invited the entire committee. He says, we're going to be doing our hearing in Yuma, Arizona. And not a single Democrat came, of course. Of course, they didn't come. They said, oh, we had a scheduling conflict. Yeah, you knew about this for weeks. Uh, You didn't have a scheduling conflict. Uh, You wanted to avoid dealing with the angry people of Yuma. Now, Yuma, this is not this rock ribbed, hardcore Republican community. It's a border community. It's about 50-50. They voted for Katie Hobbs, the Democrat for governor over Kerry Lake. They voted for I think Trump won slightly over Biden. So they're they're very purple. They're right on the edge. This is not, you know, a partisan community per se. But the people there are just sick of it. They've had enough and they don't understand why there's so many Democrats who live there. They're like, "Why on earth is this Alejandro Mayorkas not just lying to us, saying he's going to fix it, never does. Joe Biden ignores it. Joe Biden won't show up. He won't do a border tour. So um, people there are very upset. And uh, I didn't think it was getting enough coverage. And since it happened in my backyard, I wrote about it for CNN. I will include a link uh, to my genius article there. But uh, thanks to somebody in Washington actually paying attention to this garbage, Um, nobody else seems to care too much you get very upset when two dozen migrants are flown to Martha's Vineyard but 300,000 cruising through Yuma eh, no biggie no biggie Eric Adams mayor of New York City was freaking out because I don't know they had something like 25,000 migrants come to New York City a city of umpteen million people yeah try to deal with 300,000 which is a You know, percentage wise, a fraction of what Yuma is dealing with. You guys are not suffering at all. You might want to fix the problem on the border. Now, let's get to the song of the week. Something popped up in my recommended feed for Spotify, and it's a song that's been out here and there for a while, but it's um, not been on a big release. They just did a big box set release of one of my favorite bands, Indie Darlings from the 90s, Neutral Milk Hotel. Now, this band came out with two albums. Um, on Avery Island and in the aeroplane over the sea. And then um, the second one was A Critical Darling. Many people listed it as the best best album of the year. I think that came out in 98, I'm guessing. 98, 97, 99, something like that. Critics adored it. And then the main force behind that band, Jeff Mangum is his name, lived in Athens, Georgia. He doesn't want to be famous. He doesn't like fame. He doesn't like the music industry. He just wants to take his guitar and play songs, That that's all he wants to do. So he just vanished and he didn't quit. He didn't say, I'm never going to do anything again. He just stopped producing things and would just, I don't know, make mixtapes for his buddies and record a song here and there at one of their shows. Well, anyway, um, this, the record label has come out with a box set and they include a lot of uh, kind of lo-fi recordings, things that were never released on albums. And um, I ran across this one. It's actually a fan favorite um, on the few live appearances that Jeff Mangum has done over the past 20 years, I guess. But um, it's called Engine. He describes it as a children's song. So it's just kind of mellow and simple. You're riding alone in the
2: back of a steamer and steaming yourself.
1: For his songs that got the full album treatment, he just has all this crazy instrumentation. There's sousaphones, there's musical saws, there's all sorts of just crazy instruments. It's like twenty people are in a room banging on pots and pans, and it's fun and it's weird and it's kind of old-fashioned but very modern at the same time. So um, I can never get enough neutral Milk Hotel, and uh, thought I would share that with you, the listeners. Thanks so much for listening again. You can see the the interview portion on YouTube. Link in the show notes. Uh, Subscribe to Ricochet. It's a grand place. And uh, check out the shows and books released by Alexander Hudson. I'll talk to you next week. Ricochet. Join the conversation.